Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. There are times in life where it feels like we have a lot of momentum. Things are growing and changing, and we can almost feel the progress that we're making toward our goals. And then there are times where we're really content with where we're at. We're happy with life, and we're not really looking to make any big changes. And then there are the times where it feels like we're stagnating. We're unfulfilled, bored, or trapped in cycles of behavior that just don't serve us anymore. We're stuck in a rut. So today, we're going to be exploring how to unstuck ourselves. And to help us do that, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm helping myself get unstuck. <laughs> aren't, aren't we all in ways large and small? I'm definitely going through a process of that in a few different arenas in my own life these days. So this topic is like very alive for me right now. And I also know that it's very alive for you because you are actually planning on teaching a special two-day online workshop dedicated to changing your mind on August 28th and 29th. So if you're interested in the topics that we explore today during this episode, you'll probably love that workshop as well, as it's going to go into them and maybe some others as well in much more detail. And I've included a link to that program in the information for today's podcast. And if you enter the code BEINGWELL25 at checkout, you'll receive 25% off the purchase price. That's for our podcast listeners. Also, before we get into the content today, I just wanted to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. The podcast, Rick and I all have our own Instagram and Facebook profiles, which I've also linked in the description of today's episode. So all that said, to frame our conversation today, it's a unfairly big question, but what tends to lead to somebody kind of getting stuck in a rut? Uh, <laughs> I immediately think about two friends of mine talking with each other. One guy says to the other, man, I feel like I've had my head up my ass a lot lately. And the other one says, yeah, but it's great to be home again. So <laughs> there's something about <laughs> the familiarity of various ways of being, ways of feeling, ways of speaking, ways of acting, ways of thinking that we know doesn't feel that good and we know kind of traps us. And yet ugh, it feels really hard to break out of it. So what mm, are the kinds mm -hmm. of forces that maintain that and what can we do about them, right? And I know you think this way too. There are big forces out in the world that tend to keep people stuck in not good places large-scale forces, structures of systemic mistreatment, just circumstances, weather, <laughs> the luck of the draw, where you were born, to who you were born, all the rest of that. That's going to affect you. And then, of course, your body. Your body really matters. It's remarkable how differently we feel when we're grappling with the acronym in Alcoholics Anonymous, HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. when we're in that kind of mode, we're much more likely to be stuck yeah. rather than feeling, let's say, uh, well-fed, peaceful, lovingly connected, and energized. We're going to be a lot better at getting unstuck. So the body makes a big difference. Okay, all that said, then we got the three pounds of tofu-like tissue but inside the coconut what's going on inside of our own mind. And that's where I hope we can talk about, especially the kind of thoughts that we have uh, that keep us stuck. Thoughts are distinct from emotions, which tend to have an element to them involving our sensations, our desires. 
On the other hand, our emotions, our sensations, and our desires tend to have a lot of momentum. They have a lot of inertia. They're hard to budge. But thoughts, these kind of quicksilver flickers of how we look at ourselves, how we look at others, the assumptions we make, the expectations we have, the frames of reference, the stories we tell ourselves about the nature of life and what's actually possible to us, those are very much under our influence. And so by budging our thoughts, we can tend to budge ourselves a lot when we're feeling stuck these days. Mm. I think it's a great framing and a setup for kind of our conversation here. To really vastly oversimplify, we're trying to focus on the stuff that we have more control over rather than the stuff that we have less control over. And we'll definitely, uh, toward the end of this conversation, do some talking about external factors, things that are outside of our thoughts, our emotions, our body, just like out there in the world that also have an influence over us Mm -hmm. that we could maybe influence ourselves in some useful ways as well. And that's like worth thinking about. But I think that probably the bulk of our conversation is going to focus as you said, on that stuff inside of the coconut. And certainly for me, just like starting with personal experience, maybe more than anything else, the stuff that keeps me stuck personally are my views about the world. Hmm. The ways that I think that things should be, the ways that things are supposed to be, the stuff that I'm allowed to do, the stuff that I'm not allowed to do. Uh, A lot of people refer to this using the language of limiting beliefs of various Mm. kinds that's often directed at ourselves in terms of what we think we are and aren't capable of. But we can kind of apply that framework of limiting beliefs out into the world as well, like the way that something is supposed to go, the amount of time you're supposed to spend in a job before you move on to the next one. And a lot of these beliefs come from, as we've explored on the podcast many times in the past, come from kind of our more developmental experiences, Mm. the stuff that we learn about the world when we're young, which is something that you've talked about a lot on this podcast, Dad. I think to myself, like examples for me of being stuck at different times. So one is being caught up in a resentment or an irritation about something Mm. and kind of being stuck to it. 2,500 years ago in early Buddhism, there was this metaphor of a dog chained to a stake. And the dog is not being abused, but the dog is in effect stuck in its range of motion, its possibilities. It can move around a little bit, but that stake uh, really constrains its opportunities. And so there are times when we can get stuck to patterns of grievance or resentment, grudges. We can also get stuck in toxic self-doubt and harsh self-criticism, scolding ourselves, that's really bad for us. We can get stuck in patterns with other people where we feel like we're in a kind of a script and we're not allowed to step out of our role. Now, maybe because of external factors in our culture, our situation might actually be dangerous to step out of our role. Okay, sometimes that happens, but very often the inner screenwriter and the inner director, the inner writer's room is inside our head. That's who's keeping us Mm -hmm. stuck in that particular script that constrains, that limits what we think we can actually say to the other person or what we're allowed to do if we say X and they do Y, right? Those are the kinds of things that tend to keep us stuck. And two engines of stuckness come from psychology and fancy word alert. Uh, I'm going to name them and I hope not blather on too long here. People can be kind of aware of them. The first is the word appraisals. So you said your views of the world tend to keep you stuck. 
for example. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested yeah. in maybe an example totally. from you. Yeah. So how do we see things? Do we see it as a big problem or a little problem? If it's really a two on the zero to 10 big problem scale, but we react to it because we think it's a seven, well, that's a problem. So it's how we appraise things. Are they friendly? Are they not friendly? How do we appraise ourselves? And then there's this other word, attributions. And this is where we think that something is going on in the mind of the other person, like they did it on purpose, or they don't really respect us, Mm -hmm. or they don't really care about us, Mm -hmm. or they hate us. Those are attributions to the nature of other people. Or we might just think that they're worthy of contempt. You know, they're less than us. They're, They're bad. And so those two terms, how do you appraise things? How do you think about them? And second, what qualities, especially intentions, do you attribute to other people? Those are things well known in psychology that can tend to keep us stuck. One of the metaphors that you used pretty early on with me when I was younger, I forget the first time that I heard this from you, but I think I heard it actually from you. You may or may not have been quoting somebody else, so let me know if I should be attributing this to another person. But it's basically just the idea that like a lot of people go through life essentially feeling like they're trapped in a prison, you know, the prison of their own thoughts, the prison of their own expectations, their appraisals and attributions, whatever. And they're just like shaking the bars of their prison, their invisible prison, the cage they put around themselves. When the truth is that the bars are actually only in front of them. And if they just like looked left and right and behind them, they would realize that they're the one holding the cage up. And that kind of beautifully evocative and visual metaphor has always been like extremely useful to me Hmm. personally in terms of my own process of trying to kind of diagnose the times where I am the one who is holding the bars of the cage. Mm -hmm. And so you've, as a part of the prep for the workshop that you're teaching and just your work in general, have sort of like thought in, in some depth about the way in which we can kind of go through a process of challenging those assumptions about ourselves or about the external world. Would you mind kind of laying that out a little bit? Oh, sure. And thanks for appreciating that. I, I read somewhere, and supposedly true, that these tigers in the Berlin Zoo were kept inside of a cage mm. for many years. And the zoo went through a big project where it built a big park for them that had fences that were much farther away. And then with great fanfare, they removed the bars, and yet the animals stayed inside the perimeter Uh, of what used to be their cage, rather than venturing out into the whole of it. And I feel that we do that both internally and externally. We internally pull ourselves away from certain depths in us, maybe because we're afraid of getting in touch with our feelings or acknowledging to ourselves real longings that we have maybe, or being so unnerved by sort of nasty, angry, you know, whatever parts of ourselves that we try to lock them in the basement and never recognize them again. So in that sense, we withdraw into a kind of internal box, a kind of internal cage with regard to the whole of who we are. And then with other people, Yes, there are times when if you do certain things, there will be a bad outcome. But a lot of what's going on there is that we're transferring, we're generalizing from childhood experiences in which bad events happened often, number one, that felt horrible, number two, 
that we could do little to cope with, number three. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in adulthood, we've gotten out of junior high school. We're no longer next door to those people. We're not being raised by the people who raised us. So bad events, if we are full and big and are and honest and are and express ourselves fully and take chances, bad events, number one, are much less likely. Number two, even if they happened, we wouldn't feel so bad because we're adults and our nervous system is fully mature. We're a lot more regulated. And number three, we have so many more ways to cope if, hypothetically, the bad event does occur that still feels really bad. We can cope in all kinds of ways. We can get mm. away from the situation usually for fairly quickly. We can turn to other resources. We can do all kinds of things that we weren't allowed to do or couldn't do when we were two years old or 12 or 22 years old. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, right there yeah. gives us a big opportunity. First, what have you withdrawn from inside yourself that you don't need to withdraw from? And you mm -hmm. could really reclaim more and more of your own interior. That's been a lifelong process for me as a guy who was internally exiled for kind of getting through my own childhood and my own internal experience of what was externally a fairly decent situation. I was reflecting recently for us that I, I had a kind of C minus experience in a B minus setting. And a lot of that was my own process. Mm. And mm -hmm. um, I get a pass because I was a kid at the time, but a lot, of, a lot of that was sourced inside myself. And I think it's helpful for people to appreciate they can have a C minus experience or a D plus experience in what's a basically okay environment for different kinds of reasons. You know, that was really true for me. Anyway, and the other takeaway in, in the world today for people is to really ask yourself, how likely is the bad event that you're worried about? How really likely is it? How often does it tend to befall others who are going to do what you want to do or who do what you want to do? Second, okay, if it happened, you're strong, you're tough, you're able. How horrible would you feel? How bad would you feel and how long would you feel bad? Mm. Yeah, you might feel bad for 45 minutes. It might kind of stick in your craw till you go to bed and wake up in the morning, but not that bad. And then even if it happened and even if it felt bad, what are two things you could do to cope with it? Whatever they might be. Mm. Go meditate for a few minutes. Go you know, eat a cookie. <laughs> go jump up and down. You know, go tell your, your friend, your partner, hey, this thing happened. Get it off your chest. What could you do to you know, cope with it? And when you kind of run through that almost systematically, the odds of it happening, how bad it would actually feel, and what you could do about it, then you start feeling a lot more freed up about stepping outside of the mm. bars of your invisible cage. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that that's great advice top to bottom. To kind of bring this into the realm of the practical and maybe talk about what we're talking about a little bit here, I'll use myself as a guinea pig as yeah. we commonly do on the podcast. Forrest will be the guinea pig once again. Oh, I'll, 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 we'll take turns here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. I've had a lot of moments in my life where there wasn't a thing that was giving me a lot of externally valenced momentum. So I'm thinking right now of, of a moment where I was post-college, I had been working at a job, I left that job, and I was just kind of there. I didn't really have a thing to do. I could consider graduate school. I was kind of, I was looking for a job. I was seriously engaged in a variety of hobbies. But there wasn't something externally that was really pushing my life forward in a serious way. 
And then there have also been times where I've been incredibly busy while also feeling that I was sort of languishing, that like I was working, mm. but I wasn't really doing important work. I was kind of, uh, it's sort of like being on a stationary bike, you know, where you're really chugging away, but you're not going anywhere. And there was this general feeling of kind of a lack of momentum in my life. Then I've also been in times where, man, I've been in relationships or friendships or whatever, where it just felt like they weren't going anywhere. They weren't really serving me anymore. Uh, we've done podcasts particularly on like when to know it's time to leave a situation. And some of that material is probably relevant here as well. And a lot of the time when I was in those moments, there was a recognition that I was in those moments. Like I knew that I was use your word of choice, languishing, unfulfilled, stuck. And people would come to me with a lot of really good advice, frankly. Like, I got a lot of great advice, probably not the least of which was because you're my dad, my mom's my mom, and my sister's my sister, and I have a lovely family ecosystem around me. I got a lot of great advice. And yet there were all of these reasons I kept finding that the advice sucked, you know? And I just, like, had such a hard time seeing outside the boundaries of that invisible cage because of like different limiting assumptions that I was carrying about the way that the world worked or the way that I was. And what's really helped me in the past move through those experiences has been kind of this like three-step template. The first step, what are the assumptions that I'm making about this situation? Great. Like what am I assuming is true right now that may or may not actually be true? Then the second step, right there, evaluate whether or not it's true. Like, is this assumption real? And that's a stage where you're kind of fighting limiting beliefs. And then third step, you're creating new beliefs that might lead to better outcomes for you. And then kind of wreathed around this are a variety of external factors, changing behaviors, thinking about ways to get new inputs into the system, all of that stuff. But those are the three steps that have been kind of particularly useful to me. And maybe we can explore like how to do those a little bit better. You know, I'll, I'll use myself maybe as an example, a guinea pig here, uh, in that just as I grew up, basically was in school, I'd skipped a grade, I was shy, I was withdrawn a lot. And I just saw that when I did stick my neck out and answer a question in class or get a little loose, often there was a kind of criticism that would come at me from my parents when I was at home or the other kids, you know, I, and, and I was sensitive. I was open. I was affected by, by what people said. So I didn't like it. So I just kind of learned to keep my head below the weeds, you know, way down deep. Well, fast forward 30 years later, I got a PhD, you know, I'm reasonably successful. And still I noticed, especially in group settings, when there was this opportunity to uh, be a little bold, disagree maybe, say something kind of strong, or uh, just sort of take a chance on something, there would be this almost overwhelming sleepiness that would come over me, hmm. or a feeling of just hunkering down, curling up, and swerving away from the self-expression. So that was a kind of stuckness. And so if I were to apply your method here, your three-part method, I'd really like it. The forest plan. Number one, is it true? Right? That kind of Byron Katie as well. Yeah. Is it actually true? And yeah. assumptions that a bad thing would happen? No. Because I can see all kinds of other people sticking their neck out. 
so it's not true. And second, when I did say stuff, even if people kind of disagreed with it, it didn't matter because it was gone really quickly. Okay, great. So what are the actual facts, right? Good. And then I think I've moved into the second piece of it too, because I'm challenging the mm -hmm. assumptions. I'm doing real good internal cognitive therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm disputing the pathogenic beliefs. Rock and roll, baby. Yeah, I like it. Okay, good. So that's the two <laughs> for one. And then new beliefs, which I did over and over and over again, were to realize uh, all kinds of good things, like what they think usually actually doesn't matter. Another true belief is this is my life, nobody else's. And when I'm sitting there on the rocker in the last year or two or three, I don't want to look back and think to myself, my life was limited because I lost my nerve. Nope, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Another new belief, maybe the last one, is that at the end of the day, bottom line, my precious son, my precious daughter, my precious wife, they all don't give a darn about that stuff and they love and appreciate me, period. Well, that's a pretty good new belief. Thank you. And in that, of course, when you have a belief, you have feelings that come with it mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. sensations and desires. And it's kind of an indicator of how much our thoughts can really help us. So I like your, I like your three-part plan, Forrest. Uh, well, thanks, Dad. No, I totally appreciate it. You should write a book about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know, right? Like the the ephemeral forest book that is always just <laughs> floating around out there that maybe one day will come to fruition. We'll see. But uh, talking about those kind of new beliefs, what are some of the kind of big core skills that can help us lean into developing those new beliefs? First, notice the BS in your own mind. Just notice it. Notice mm -hmm. the thoughts, the assumptions, the quick meanings we give things. Events are occurring. I mean, this might sound a little philosophical, but it's actually so powerful to recognize. Things just are what they are, mm. right? I'm holding up a water bottle. It's one I reuse repeatedly. It's made of plastic and all the rest of that. So I look at this water bottle. It just is what it is. But then we have all kinds of concepts and labels we attribute to it. We, we appraise it as certain kinds of things. We attribute different qualities to it. It is just what it is. And it's very helpful to be self-aware of the meanings you give things. Often as a therapist, someone will tell me something and it will seem self-evident to them that it meant a particular thing, which then, hmm. because of that meaning, makes them upset. My boss didn't like my idea. Okay, that happened. Mm. That's like the water bottle. It's an event. But what does that mean to you? Well, my boss didn't like the idea, which means that my boss thinks I'm stupid and worthless and I'm going to get fired and then we won't have any money and we will all starve. Okay. Option B, my boss didn't like my idea. Well, what does that mean? Uh, it means that, as usual, my boss doesn't like anybody's idea. So it's not personal to me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Or option C, my boss didn't like my idea. All right. What does that mean? Well, it means my boss didn't like that idea because my boss clearly didn't really understand my idea, partly because I didn't lay a groundwork of mm -hmm. you know, answering some questions 
uh, that uh, she had about it. Uh, so I'm going to go talk with her again, and I'm going to anticipate her questions and objections, and I'm going to do a little more homework and bring some facts to bear, and I bet you'll like it then. Totally different, right? Mm, the different mm -hmm. meanings we give to it. I think about the example of standing in an elevator, let's say, and suddenly there's a sharp pain in your foot, okay? And what does it mean? Well, maybe there's a you know fellow standing next to you, weighs about 300 pounds, big long beard, seems pretty scruffy, wearing a motorcycle jacket. And, you know, you make it mean that he deliberately did it. He deliberately or recklessly stepped mm. on your foot because somehow he fits a kind of script you have of that kind of person. Well, okay, maybe he deliberately in an elevator just randomly attacks some stranger's foot. Alternately, you could make it mean, oh, especially if you look at him and you realize there's this expression of surprise and dismay and apology that he did that and a quick effort to kind of remedy the situation with an expression of kindness coming over his face. Well, it would mean something really, really different. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. So I think that's really one. Pay attention to what you make things mean. We make meaning in our minds, mm -hmm. right? Second, how personally do you need to take it? Mm. Is it just bad weather? Is it just a complicated collection of impersonal factors, maybe a handful of which are about you personally? Or is it all about you? Usually it's not all about you. It's, you know, it's usually pretty impersonal. Those are two things right there that are really, really, really helpful. And then another one, I'll, and I'll finish on this one, is to ask yourself, what's the frame? What's the storyline? What's the movie? that I'm dropping this into, right? So is the storyline mm. based in some kind of paradigm of relationships I learned as a kid in which anytime I'm around a powerful person, I must submit, I must obey, I must become invisible or I will be destroyed? Is that some kind of running script? So now today I apply that script to situations with powerful people who have no desire to destroy or dominate me and have no need for me to be invisible and are in fact wanting to dance with and play with and talk with an equally powerful person, an equally expressed and vital and passionate person, right? So there are these scripts that we often have just kind of operating in the background that give us presumptions about mm. things. And from a very practical standpoint, if you imagine two or three or four um, important relationships or, you know, you imagine a kind of a running challenge for you, in what way is how you are with regard to that related to some kind of script you acquired, you know, before your 30th birthday? We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, 
a great mix of guests and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. You know, there's a funny story, uh, if I, if you'll indulge me slightly, and you may want to edit this out. But anyway, it comes out of Tom mm-hmm. Wolfe's book about the Merry Pranksters, the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Mm-hmm. And there's this passage in the book that I'm going to summarize that I've thought about a million times. And basically the passage is, the the backstory is that it's 1964. The U.S. is going through a lot of ferment, segregation uh, involving African-Americans, terrible forms of racism. Jim Crow are very, very alive in the country, particularly in the South. And this day-glow painted big yellow school bus is rolling across the South, cross-country in the summer of 1964, and they're making a documentary about it. Routinely, what would happen is Mm. that the bus would be rolling along, minding its own business through some county somewhere in Texas or Arkansas, let's say, and would, they'd get pulled over by a traffic cop. And we know the script, right? The red lights go on behind your car. You know the script, your role, their role, what's supposed to happen here. So the cop would pull them over, start hassling them, start talking with them. Nothing was wrong with their bus, but the cop was just trying to see what was going on. The camera crew would come out of the bus and very respectfully and courteously, Mm. they would begin filming the driver of the bus, also being respectful and courteous while having hair down to his waist probably, and uh, interacting with this cop. You can imagine the picture of the cop with the mirrored sunglasses, you know, the big belt and the gun and everything else. And so the cop is trying to maintain his movie. Always, it was a man then, certainly. Yeah. But what would happen is that the documentary crew would start doing little things just kind of automatically. Officer, sorry, could you please say that again? Or officer, I'm going to hold the microphone a little closer. (laughs) Or officer, do you mind kind of moving slightly because the sun is going to look really good if you just kind of move to the side a little bit here. Very inoffensively. But what would gradually happen is that you could see that they did not take his movie terribly seriously. And they retained the inner freedom Mm. and the inner autonomy agency and so forth to stand in their movie 
in the process of which they drew him into their movie without directly confronting Mm -hmm. or attacking his movie, his frame of reference, his script. And I've thought about that a million times since with the question, whose movie are you in? Their movie or your Mm. movie? Or what movie are we as the group or the collective stuck in? And can we step out of that old movie and step into a new movie of our own making? That's really interesting. Um, It's a great analogy. And I think a really good summary of what it often feels like sometimes to be in those situations where we feel trapped, where we feel trapped in a way of being, a way of looking at the world, where it it does feel like there's just this script that's kind of compelling us onward. And it can be really worthwhile to take a moment and ask yourself that question, like, whose movie am I in right now? And is it what I want to be in? And what would a new movie for me look like? And and almost externalize it in a weird sort of way and make it about those, those broader structures and those broader processes that you can choose to be a part of, or, you know, maybe sometimes, not always, but maybe sometimes you can choose not to be a part of, and you could choose to do things a little bit differently. Yeah. To just kind of reinforce what you're saying, I think that throughout this whole process and kind of returning to the little outline that I had a second ago around, all right, let's diagnose our assumptions, let's mm-hmm. evaluate what's true, little, as you said, good cognitive behavioral therapy in there. And then we're creating new beliefs that can lead us toward better outcomes. To me, there are three skills that just really support us in all of that and Mm -hmm. probably also really support us in developing that new movie that you're talking about. Uh, The first one is self-awareness. And what I mean by this is really the ability to take a third eye and to kind of stand outside yourself and watch what's going on which can then support us in giving ourselves the advice that we might give to a good friend. And a lot of the time, that advice is going to be really useful. Uh, The second one is just self-confidence, being determined to do things that are good for you in your life, being determined to make that new movie, Um, having a feeling that if you try it, hey, it's not going to work out all of the time, but I'm going to give it my best effort and it's going to work out some of the time at the very least. And then finally, um, I think that actually self-compassion is a huge part of it. We were talking with Kristen Neff recently about fierce self-compassion, which I think absolutely has a role here. And then also just like kind of the more generalized uh, forms of self-compassion that we think about immediately in terms of being aware of maybe the parts of ourselves that are hurting, and they are expressing that hurt by keeping us in these situations where we feel stuck. Right. Because there is a fear from those parts about what might happen, as you were saying earlier, if we change that circumstance. Yeah. And again, it's just it's the analogy that you've given or that I've given that is originally yours many times on the podcast, the warm bathwater. Uh-huh. You know, like we stay in the lukewarm bathwater because it's safe, even though we're not totally enjoying it. Yeah. And I think that self-compassion is one of the things that can can help us free us of that cycle because we can actually look at those parts almost in a kind of IFSE sort of way. And be like, wow, yeah, that sucks. Like, wow, I really feel your hurt. I really feel why you're doing these things. But you know, I need you to just relax a little bit around this topic and we can get you into such a better circumstance. So those are three things that have been just very useful for me personally. I think that's great. And uh, if I could, I think it's kind of part of one of them. This yeah, please. lightning quick, it takes about half a second movement into what you feel you must say 
or must do mm. or must, you know, the sense of insistence. And tracking that in real time can be super helpful. So I want to acknowledge a failure of mine a little earlier today with your mom, in which I said something <laughs> stupid. <laughs> was grounded in a must. <laughs> and as part of me saying at the beginning mm. of this interview, I'm helping myself get unstuck here in real time. Mm. Essentially, uh, the quick and dirty with her was simply that she was just talking out loud about a complicated situation in, she, in which she's a tenant in an office group having to do with her professional practice. And some questions are arising as they make changes about you know, the fairness of who pays for what and when you count the rent as well as things like utilities and water and power and electricity and, and cleaning fees and so forth. And suddenly I found that I didn't understand. It wasn't clear what she was saying or meaning. And really quickly, I jumped into a must. We must have clarity. Mm. Now, we actually didn't need to have clarity because we weren't even involved in the money. She was just talking about stuff that affected other people. Mm. But I'm like a clarity junkie. You may have noticed that. And if I don't get my fix, <laughs> I must get clarity. <laughs> so boom, mm -hmm. bing. It was like insistence, you know, demand. These are just different words for the mustness of it all. And boom, and then on the heels of that mustness, you know, on the thought of must comes all kinds of body sensations and activation and revving up and getting intense. And- from her standpoint then, her must, which was much more legitimate, was, was my husband must not put so much pressure on me, <laughs> you know, because I was getting kind of heated about, mm -hmm. well, how much are the utilities? Blah, 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 blah. And anyway, that's it on that little episode. But I think it's a great little lesson in real time in, for us to really ask ourselves, does it really have to be a certain way? Now, some things do, and I'm not speaking mm, against mm -hmm. values. I'm not speaking against social action. I'm not speaking about, you know, not stand. I'm not speaking against standing up for yourself and things like that. But wow, is it helpful to just be aware of these rules, these shoulds, you know, these demands that come bubbling up inside us that you know don't actually have all that weight in real reality. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I can absolutely replay versions of that script that I have fallen into uh, many times, certainly with my partner, um, but also just with many people out in the world where you just get kind of activated by something and it triggers an element of your material or your nature, your shoulds, as you're saying. And all of a sudden you're off to the races without much regard for like human life in, in the midst of the whole thing. Yeah, so, yeah. so far we've really been yeah. focusing on, as we were saying at the beginning, kind of those more internal factors, particularly the thoughts that we have about the world. And we've talked a lot about different ways to kind of get stuck less frequently. Some of this has been sort of implicit. We've talked about questioning assumptions. We've talked about all of the cognitive biases to a degree that we have that like make us view the world a little bit less skillfully, a little bit less clearly. We've talked a bit about how we can develop new skills or maybe having an orientation where we want to change in important ways. I mentioned earlier having that kind of third eye if somebody else were in my position, mm. what advice would I give them? And as we get toward the end of the episode, I want to spend a little bit of time here talking about some of those more external factors or circumstantial mm. factors, however you want to kind of talk about them. 
that tend to keep people stuck, um, particularly the ones that we can actually do something about. So to start with, one that I think has a big influence is just like social influences of different kinds. And particularly the way in which we change internally versus the way in which our external circumstance changes, because they change at different speeds. A lot of the time, people will go through periods of growth inside of themselves, growth and change, but their external world remains largely the same. So something has moved inside of them, but stuff hasn't moved out in the world. And when we change the systems that we're a part of, have pressure put on them to change as well. To use, again, some slightly fancy language, we start to disrupt the homeostasis of the group. Groups want to stay kind of the same. And when we change, we start to make those groups change. And the groups don't want to change. So the groups push back on us. And we've talked Mm -hmm. about this on the podcast many times in the past. Um, One of the great lines that I heard from Lori Gottlieb, I don't know if she was getting this from somebody else, is families are the people who have known us the longest. And because of this, they tend to be the most resistant to change. And that's just a proxy for Mm. social circumstances in general. A lot of the time, just because we're changing internally doesn't mean our circumstances are changing. And those circumstances can start to try to prevent our positive change and our positive movement. Well, you're summarizing 50 years of research on family therapy. (laughs) Yeah, I did that pretty uh, briskly. (laughs) You know, in a really good way, a fantastic way for us. It's funny, I'll tell you a, a, an example of that for me as I lived in Finland for years, you know, with my family. I was 14 to 15, my junior year in high school. And what was extraordinary to me was how freeing it felt mm. to be outside of the scripts that I was kind of stuck in that were endlessly reinforced by the other kids I knew in school mm. and who knew me. And also, in some ways, my family scripting was a little disrupted because my parents had to deal with a lot of stuff. So my sister and brother and I kind of escaped from some of their radar. Mm. And so we were more and more free to kind of, again, discover ourselves just uh, on a different stage, a stage without those, let's say, familiar parental actors there. That was really powerful. And I think for a lot of people, what's helpful is to put themselves in situations a little bit like a jumpstart right? Or priming the pump. You do a little thing by putting yourself in a situation, maybe with different kinds of people who have have a little bit different viewpoint. Maybe they're a little more open-minded. Maybe they just don't know you. So you're a lot freer to kind of be your natural self rather than your acquired self. (laughs) The scripted, learned act you built up, sometimes for good reasons, but still you're kind of stuck in today. So that can be a really helpful thing. And also having friends who support the real you and who really have a are a, a kind of stand for just being yourself. That also speaks to, of course, the ways in which when we do that for others, right? When we really are, we give them room to breathe around mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. and to change. Yeah. And also we support their healing and growth and becoming, in effect, a little different. Mm. That's such a great gift you know, we can give to other people. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And just that idea of being a refuge for other people, like somebody that they feel like they can grow and change alongside is really, really powerful. And I was talking with Elizabeth, my partner, I think it was just a couple of days ago, about this idea of relationships that feel fundamentally sturdy, 
versus ones that feel like in their foundation, there's just a little bit of shakiness for one reason or another. And when we build those relationships with people that are deeply stable, it becomes more possible to be open to change, to to growth and change and disruption because the foundation is so sturdy. But when we have like relationships that are not on such stable ground, any change becomes extremely threatening to the relationship as a whole. The relationship could be a friendship, it could be a family environment, it could be a romantic partnership. And if we're able to really build that strong foundation, all of a sudden, all of this opportunity for change and growth comes alongside that. And I just think that that's such like a lovely thing and really highlights how threatening change is often for different kinds of environments and the different relationships that we have with other people. Because, you know, change could involve somebody's role in your life altering itself in a meaningful way. And that can be extremely threatening. I think this is a very deep topic, including having the courage to become different. Mm, It's mm -hmm. scary to change your mind. And it's like I said, yeah, you know, you have your head in the deep, dark place, but it's familiar. It's home. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to be home again. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, there are different ways that people do that that are well understood in, in psychology. One of them is the ways in which people because of what's called cognitive dissonance. It's uncomfortable to have contradictory information, to deal with information that contradicts some of your cherished beliefs in a nutshell. And so because it's uncomfortable, people manage that discomfort, not by actually budging and shifting their cherished beliefs, but they just whoop, throw out that other information, or they don't notice it in the, in the first place, or they distort it to somehow reinforce their cherished beliefs. And one of the mm. really powerful ways to help yourself change your mind, you know, and get unstuck is to look out in the world for evidence that challenges your cherished but limiting beliefs about the world, yourself, other mm, people, mm-hmm. the past and the future. Look for that disconfirming evidence. And when you see it, really, really value it. An example of that for me was when I first started getting into rock climbing, the evidence that I was a scrawny, skinny, six foot guy who probably weighed about 130 pounds, nonetheless, with cunning and determination, I could actually climb pretty well and do some pretty hairy things that most people couldn't, including these burly athletic types that scared the heck out of me when I was in school. That was disconfirming evidence. That was counter evidence that really forced mm. that view of myself as a wimp and a weakling and unappealing and kind of worthless had to budge. It had to budge to really internalize that that new information. And that goes to something I think you're getting at here about with other people or in general, is to look for little ways you can, mm. you know, think newly, right? I guess I kind of think for myself about um, a sort of four-step process that's very in parallel to what you were saying. First one is flip the circuit breaker, just step back, witness, observe, bring a not mm-hmm. knowing, bring a beginner's mind when you recognize your beliefs. Second thing is to very quickly just sort of track that you're basically okay, reset to okay. 
In this moment, the house is not burning down. In this moment, you don't need to insist. In that moment with my wife, there was no stake on the table other than me getting hijacked by my rule that we had to have mm. clarity about money, especially, you know, the third time we're talking about this. So, you know, reset to okay. When it's you're authentically okay, and you usually are, that's a really calming. Then third, yes, argue with, dispute, challenge, contradict, the limiting beliefs, the thoughts that make you suffer and other people too. And then fourth, do little, take little positive steps. Take little positive steps that build on each other in an upward spiral, like going out and putting yourself in different situations with different people or doing something maybe a little bolder, rock climbing safely if, if you care to, uh, than you've done in the past. And then when those little positive steps go well, take in the good, let it land and let your worldview change as a result. It's great advice. I think it's a really good outline just to sort of leave people with here for okay. this episode. We've covered a lot of ground today. Um, and also we're planning on doing another episode focused specifically on working with very common limiting beliefs. Like what are some of the beliefs and views and assumptions that we have about the world that keep us trapped inside of our circumstance. And you've really broken those down and like detailed them out. So this is kind of the part one of our getting unstuck conversation. And then in part two, we're going to focus specifically on some of those common beliefs and what we can do to unwind from them in a variety of different ways. But until then, today we focused on how we can get unstuck. I began our conversation today by asking Rick a question that was probably a little unfairly big. What tends to lead to people getting stuck in a rut? And there are many, many different factors that contribute to this that can be broken up into a variety of different categories. Some of those factors are circumstantial. They're situations that we're born into, the nature of our body, maybe the nature of our health. Then there are also factors that are about the environment that surround us. Some of those we choose, and some of those are chosen for us much of the time. Then there are the factors that exist inside of ourselves. Maybe they're emotional states, or maybe they're kind of cognitive views, uh, thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, worldviews, whatever it might be, that color the way that we perceive our environments. These could be different thoughts or beliefs, assumptions, worldviews in general that color the way that we perceive the world around us. Now, all of these things are important, but most of the time we have more influence over the stuff that goes on inside our own mind than the stuff that happens to us out in the world. And at least in my experience, all of that cognitive stuff, the views that we hold, our limiting beliefs, all of that play an enormous role in whether or not we feel stuck in a circumstance or if we feel agent and capable of changing it for the better. We then gave some examples of the different kinds of thoughts or views that tend to get in the way of our self-actualization. They tend to impede us from changing in big ways. Some of these are expectations of the world. Others might be our self-concept, the way that we think about ourselves. And then finally, there might be our models of relationship, the ways that we think we're supposed to relate to the people around us. A lot of these different models, the expectations, the self-concepts, all of that stuff comes to us 
during our development in childhood. Which is, to me at least, really important. These often aren't things that we're actively choosing, they're just being kind of passively given to us. And part of becoming a really functional adult in the world, at least in my mind, is going through a process where we select the beliefs that we want to have, that we truly believe in, as opposed to the ones that we feel like were just given to us. I then laid out a kind of three-step plan for dealing with a moment when you're stuck. First, we need to kind of diagnose our assumptions about the nature of the world around us. Then we can evaluate the truthfulness of those assumptions. This requires us to kind of view ourselves a little bit externally, like view the mind from the outside. What are we really thinking and feeling about what's happening right now? And then critically third, we can work to create new beliefs that might lead to better outcomes for us. Rick gave a lot of very detailed examples in his own life about moments where he has felt really stuck, really trapped in a certain pattern of behavior, and then some of the things that he did to improve that, to change it over time. And then alongside that little outline, diagnosing our assumptions, evaluating their accuracy, and then creating new beliefs, There are also these three core skills, three inner strengths that I think really support us in doing that. The first is self-awareness, being able to evaluate what we actually think about a situation, even if that thought is buried a little bit deeper inside of us and doesn't immediately come to the surface. Then second, self-confidence, being calm and strong, being determined, and really trusting that if you take an action, you'll be able to make it work. Then finally, self-compassion being aware of the hurting parts that exist inside of ourselves, allying and maybe supporting those kind of thrashing around inner parts that are really having a tough time, and understanding how some of our behaviors, some of the things that are keeping us in these circumstances we no longer want to be in, might be coming from a really young, vulnerable place inside of the psyche. And extending a little bit of self-compassion to those parts can be enormously helpful. Finally, we talked about some of the circumstantial factors that tend to keep people really stuck, particularly the ones that we can actually do something about. I mentioned a line from Lori Gottlieb, families are the people who have known us the longest, and because of this, they tend to be the most resistant to change. A lot of the time, just because we're changing internally, it doesn't mean that our circumstances are changing externally. And those circumstances can really hold us back. They can really limit our ability to continue to grow and change because our environments are often highly resistant to change. Another line that I didn't share during the episode, but I think is really valuable here, is the idea that, and I forget who this comes from, you're sort of the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. So if you're really trying to grow and change in positive ways, it can be helpful to evaluate your circumstances and ask yourself if you're truly surrounding yourself with people who are supportive, as Rick said, of your growth and change over time. So that's it for today's episode on getting unstuck. We're actually going to be doing another episode focused on this general topic about limiting beliefs, some of the very common beliefs that people have that tend to get them trapped into circumstances. And then Rick's done a lot of work to lay out different ways to fight against those limiting beliefs. If you're interested in this material, you'll probably really enjoy Rick's Changing Your Mind workshop. It's on August 28th and 29th. I've included a link to it in the description of today's episode. And if you're interested in purchasing the workshop, you can use the code BEINGWELL25 for 25% off the purchase price. 
If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. If you want to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. If you'd prefer to watch these episodes rather than listen to them, you can find them on my YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen. And if you're struggling to remember all of these different URLs, I've included links to all of them in the description of today's podcast as well. So that's all for today. Until next time, thanks for listening.